Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, I'm letting him know that America's back. Uh, we're going to be back in the game. It's not American alone. After four years of America First, President-elect Joe Biden says America is back. But how hard is it going to be for the U.S. to fully re-engage at the U.N.? This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. So basically the Trump administration fought against the UN a lot over the past four years, but there's not much that you see that is irreversible for the US. If you're saying, you, do I think the Biden administration can reverse a lot of that? Yes, I think it can, but it will need political will and all of that is a political issue, not really in my legal bailiwick. But legally there's no real difficulty or obstacles to the US uh, returning in as a full supporter within the UN. That's Larry Johnson. He's a professor at Columbia Law School and was an assistant undersecretary for legal affairs, mostly under Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Johnson has spent most of his career in the UN's legal office. In this episode, he will help clarify what it means for the U.S. to rejoin or re-enter U.N. bodies and agreements that it has left or defunded over the past four years. We'll also have on the show Franco-British climate change expert Paul Watkinson. He was a member of France's team for the 2015 negotiation on the Paris Agreement. He'll help us understand what it means for the U.S. to rejoin the Paris Agreement on climate change. We'll also talk to Jordi Hannum, the executive director of the Better World Campaign, a nonpartisan organization that works to strengthen the relationship between the U.S. and the U.N. In this episode, we'll look at the steps the U.S. needs to take and the challenges it will likely encounter to rejoin the U.N. organizations and agreements it left or resigned from or defunded. It's a long list. We'll discuss the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran Nuclear Deal, or JCPOA, the Human Rights Council, UNESCO, the UN Refugee Agency for Palestine, or UNRWA, and the World Health Organization. But let's start with what seems to be one of Joe Biden's top priorities. 
Now, there's the first thing I would do the day one as president, I'd rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which we, Barack and I, put together. President-elect Joe Biden has said it many times before and after the election on November 3rd that one of his first actions in office will be to re-enter the Paris Agreement through an executive order. The United States withdrawal from the accord was finalized on November 4th, which ironically happened to be the day after the election. Here's Paul Watkinson. Whenever you negotiate a multilateral agreement, there's usually a clause that allows a party to leave if it wishes to do so. And there are a set of final clauses to the Paris Agreement, including one which allowed a party to give a year's notice to leave the agreement. But it would have to wait at least three years after the entry into force of the agreement before it could notify its intention to leave. And the Paris Agreement came into force on the, the 4th of November 2016. That was a very rapid entry into force, given it was only adopted in Paris on the, the 12th of December 2015. So any party had to wait until the 4th of November 2019, three years later, before it could notify its intention to leave. So that was provided for. We hoped that no party would need or want to use it. In practice, the United States chose to notify the United Nations a year ago of their intention to leave. And that took effect officially on the 4th of November this year, so four years after the entry into force. Now then, there is no specific pro provision for a party to re-enter, but any country which is not a party to the Paris Agreement, once it is in force, can join the Paris Agreement. So the United States are now able to join the Paris Agreement. And the provision for that is they can notify their ratification, acceptance uh, of the agreement to the United Nations. And that comes into force for them 30 days later. So if the new US administration were to deposit its uh, act of ratification or acceptance in January, 30 days later, the United States would be a party to the Paris Agreement once again. But over the past four years, the United States has turned its back to the agreement. And now the U.S. will have some catching up to do to meet the agreement's objectives. It's worth noting, however, that some American cities, businesses and states have been actively doing their part to meet some of the pledges in the agreement. While there's a lot of work ahead, it's not too late for the U.S., Watkinson says. There's a wide range of things uh, parties can put in their nationally determined contributions. So if the United States rejoin the Paris Agreement early in 2021, the most important thing they will have to do after that is to develop a new nationally determined contribution. The former U.S. administration, the Obama administration, had developed a nationally determined contribution back in 2015, which foresaw a reduction in its emissions of, I think, 26 to 28 percent by 2025, compared to a reference year of 2005. Now then, the U.S., even if they hadn't been leaving the Paris Agreement, would have had to revise that target now and set a target of 2030. Many parties set a 2030 target already. Parties only set a target of 2025 would already this year have had to update that. So the U.S. coming back will have to update their nationally determined contribution, set a new target. I would certainly hope a much more ambitious target than that one they put in, not just by looking beyond 2025 up to 2030, but in terms of the level of transformation that that implies. 
But we've seen a series of very interesting announcements just in the past few months, in particular from China with President uh, Xi Jinping in the General Assembly back in September, announcing that China would revise its 2030 target and also set a neutrality target by 2060. Uh, We've heard also Japan uh, setting a neutrality target for 2050, South Korea. And within the European Union, we have a very active debate. We've already announced a, a target for neutrality by 2050, but we're raising ambition for 2030. And other countries are also working on revising their targets. In that context, the return of the United States to the Paris Agreement in 2021 and the finalization of all of these decisions, those of us who will have made announcements and I hope finalized uh, this year, but those who were not able to update their, their targets, this is a moment for raising the ambition, bringing up the action much higher. And I think it inevitably Uh, the largest emitters are the ones that everyone will look at because that is where the effort has most impact on the global pathways in the future. So China, the United States, Europe, and of course people will look to India, to Japan, South Korea, Russia, and many other countries to see where they will be placing themselves as we move forward. While many countries have stepped up in the climate change fight over the last four years, Watkinson says that the U.S. re-emerging as a leader in this area will be a positive step toward a greener future for both the U.S. and the rest of the world. So I think it's fair to say that the international community remained committed to Paris despite the decision of the U.S. to leave. Now then, of course, that period between now and then has been the period when we've been preparing the rules to implement the Paris Agreement, preparing this debate on raising ambition. But to some extent, the full implementation is only just about to start. So the key question is what happens now? And I think that is where the return of the US to the Paris Agreement happens at a critical moment. To rejoin the Paris Agreement, the US has to send a notification of its intention to re-enter and then 30 days later, it would take effect. Then, the hard part is going to be to decide on a clear plan that will be agreed on by the US Congress. But besides the Paris Agreement, what are the legal procedures for other treaties and UN bodies it has left? One that is much more complicated is the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iran Nuclear Deal. The U.S. withdrew from the agreement in 2018. But this summer, the Trump administration tried to argue that it is still a party to the agreement in order to reimpose U.N. sanctions on Iran. But that action was rebutted by other members of the Security Council. Here's Larry Johnson of Columbia Law School. From a legal point of view, again, there's really not much difficulty because that's not even a treaty. Certainly, as far as the U.S. is concerned, I assume it's the same way in all the other participants. It was seen as political commitments and a political deal. So all it would take from the U.S. legal point of view is to return in compliance and revoke what the Trump administration had done in terms of reimposing sanctions and just return to the letter of the agreement. And they would announce that to the other participants, and they may or may not announce it to the Security Council. It's not legally necessary. The Security Council resolution 
assumes the U.S. is a participant. So you don't need to change that. It's just the U.S. would have to come in compliance and go back to following all the provisions. The U.S. legal claim ended up being hotly debated in the Security Council through letters sent by most of the council members saying the U.S. was not a participant to the deal any longer, so the U.S. actions were not considered valid. That's when Indonesia, the Security Council president in August, decided not to take action on the U.S. effort to force the council to trigger the deal's snapback mechanism. The snapback would have reimposed UN sanctions on Iran. The Indonesian ambassador to the UN, Dian Transianjani, said at the time, and I quote, Given the lack of consensus among council members, the presidency could not take further action on this issue. This language is important, according to Johnson, and means the US could technically rejoin the JCPOA at any time. What they did was the U.S. circulated a note saying they were a participant and therefore had the right to invoke the snapback. The president of the council then, Indonesia, consulted with all the other members, and at least 13 of the members in writing said, no, the U.S. is not a participant. And the president of the council said, well, because most of the members don't agree with that approach, there is nothing for the council to do about it. So he will do nothing about the U.S. letter, and that was it. So there was no decision, nothing like that at all. It was just the opinion of the other members of the council that the U.S. assertion was not sustainable, and they would not entertain it. And the U.S. did not do anything to overturn that or to force a vote or any decision on it. And that's despite the fact that many Security Council members sent letters during that time arguing that the U.S. is not a member of the Iran nuclear deal anymore. But the U.S. still decided to go ahead and invoke new sanctions on Iran. Here's Johnson. They're their individual government positions, which is very important if you're dealing with the U.K. and France and Germany and Russia and China, who were the other participants, after all, as their club. You know, it's the nuclear deal participants, and they sort of know who the participants are. So the letters are extremely important, but uh, there was no council decision as such, certainly no resolution and no decision as such. It was more or less a procedural move that the U.S. has made a claim in its letter, and the other members of the council have not accepted the assertion, and therefore the president would not proceed, according to the U.S. letter. Under the U.S. position, They didn't need Security Council approval for anything. All they needed to do was tell the Security Council, we are participant, we are invoking snapback, and unless you have a resolution within, what, 30 days, continuing sanctions, sanctions have been automatically reimposed. So as far as the U.S., probably Israel and the Gulf countries are concerned, those sanctions have all been legally snapped back. So you end up with two regimes, in fact, which is not very satisfactory. But for the JCPOA, the political will matters more than the legal opinion. According to the Washington Post, Joe Biden said he plans to return to the Iran nuclear deal if Tehran also returns to compliance. On Wednesday, November 11th, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, announced that Iran continues to increase its stockpile of low-enriched uranium far beyond 12 times the limit set in the 2015 nuclear deal. 
A diplomat from one of the permanent five-member countries recently told us that they are unsure the Biden administration would want to rejoin the JCPOA as it currently exists, because Tehran has gained more technical skill in building nuclear weapons. Here's Johnson on Iran's lack of compliance with the deal. The IAEA has indicated Iranian non-compliance. How severe it is, how serious it is, I don't know. But I think that would be the first thing a Biden administration would look at and would go to the Iranians or to the other participating states and say, look, the agency says these are areas of noncompliance. For us to come back, we need the Iranians to do it. Whether they put a deadline onto that, who knows? That's for them to to discuss. I don't know. I think the U.S. would go back into working with its allies among the participants with the Germans, the French, and the British to come up with a Western approach Mm -hmm. to uh, help induce Iran back into compliance. Now, let's move to the Human Rights Council. The United States left the council in 2018, citing the body's alleged bias against Israel and other issues. But the Human Rights Council is actually an elected body, with its 47 members elected in staggered rotation every three years, based on UN regional groups. The US left during its three-year term, so to be a member of the council again, it would simply need to present itself as a candidate in the next election cycle, Larry Johnson says. Just to indicate that it would be willing to be a candidate for election, because I think when it sort of withdrew, what it did was it the US just said, we're not gonna stand for election. We're not interested in being a member of that body. So it didn't nominate itself or or have anybody else nominate the U.S., where well, that would change if the political will was now to join the Human Rights Council. The U.S. would have to say, we will stand for election. It's not a legal issue other than just saying, we are a candidate. Then you have to do the politics to win the election. The U.S. doesn't just have to run for election, it also has to win. Given the wide makeup of regional groups, the Human Rights Council inevitably has some members that are not human rights supporters, but human rights abusers. And the body is continuously criticized for its mix of members. During the most recent election in October, Russia and China won seats as repeat members. But Saudi Arabia failed to get a seat. So the United States could either make a statement right away and say it was a candidate for a council seat in next year's council election, or wait to do some backroom work and make sure it has the support required to win a seat. But that's more a political than a legal question. I would guess, given Biden's track record being pro-human rights and pro-international justice and accountability, that I would think they would want to make a statement right away in general, about human rights and that the U.S. is indeed back on the human rights stage. And this is a political issue, clearly not a legal one, but they would maybe consult briefly with their WEOG partners, Western European allies, and other human rights advocates to make sure that they all agree that the U.S. should be back in the Human Rights Council and then would announce their candidacy. But the U.S. has to carefully consider whether to run, because it's not a given that it will succeed. In May 2001, the U.S. lost an election in the Human Rights Council's predecessor, the Human Rights Commission. Mona Ali Khalil, a former U.N. senior legal officer, told us, and I quote, It was months before the 9-11 terrorist attack, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, 
and its human rights abuses in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Guantanamo Bay. But the U.S. did get a seat in 2009 and in 2017. When it left suddenly in 2018, it was replaced by Iceland. And 2018 was not the first time the U.S. rebelled against the human rights body. In 2006, the Bush administration also boycotted the Human Rights Commission, citing, once again, anti-Israel bias. Anti-Israel bias was also the reason the United States decided to leave UNESCO under the Trump administration. UNESCO is the UN's educational, scientific, and cultural organization. In 2011, the Obama administration stopped funding UNESCO. There's U.S. law that says if any international organization admits Palestine as a full-fledged member, the U.S. shall cut off funding, period. So it wasn't necessarily Obama's choice. It was because UNESCO admitted Palestine as not an observer, but as a full-fledged member. Then, by law, he had to cut it off. So there are some things where Biden's, the new administration, is still bound by law unless the law has changed. And others, that is up to him as responsible for foreign relations in the U.S. As far as we know, Joe Biden has not made any promises when it comes to UNESCO. His foreign policy plan does not mention UNESCO. It does not even mention the U.N., in fact. But there is a U.N. transition team in his camp. While President-elect Biden has not said anything about UNESCO, it's likely the U.S. will re-engage the organization. It's technically still an observer, according to the White House, to contribute U.S. views and, quote-unquote, perspectives and expertise on some of the important issues undertaken by the organization, including the protection of world heritage, advocating for press freedoms, and promoting scientific collaboration and education. Jordi Hannum, executive director at the Better World Campaign, believes the U.S. has much to gain from rejoining. I could certainly see the administration rejoining. I mean, they can, uh, in the case of the Obama administration, they had, you know, an ambassador at a time when we weren't funding. So I could see that being the first step. And in terms of funding the organization, that's quite frankly a heavier lift. It, it would require either repealing the two laws, the 1990 law and the, or the, and the 1994 law, or amending them with a waiver. The, one of the, the challenging aspects is there's many U.S. laws that have um, national security waivers as part of them, and that if it's deemed in the national security interest of the president or the secretary of state, that there could be funding provided. But it's not the first time the U.S. has turned its back on UNESCO. Washington has a long, complicated history with the organization, Jordi Hannum told us. UNESCO was founded in 1945, again, you know, the U.S. central to it. And when it started, I mean, you know, at that time, school systems in Europe were undergoing denazification. And as part of that process, you wanted to be sure that they taught World War II accurately. UNESCO was a way to influence that curricula. Likewise, during the Cold War, American officials saw UNESCO as an advocate for free speech in an era of communist propaganda. So for decades, you know, there was really a close partnership. Then in 1974, kind of the first real conflict came about when UNESCO voted to exclude Israel from a regional working group because it, it allegedly altered the historical features of Jerusalem during archaeological excavations. Then in 1980, at a UNESCO conference, the majority of communist and third world nations called for a quote, kind of new world information order 
to compensate for the alleged pro-Western bias um, of global news organizations. And U.S. policymakers had less influence. Soviet bloc seemed to have more sway. And so, of course, in 1984, the Reagan administration terminated its relationship with UNESCO. And then for two decades, there was not a lot of interest in rejoining as the U.S. You know, had won the Cold War. And, and so we didn't rejoin until the foreign relations calculus changed again. And then in 2002, right about the one-year anniversary of 9-11, uh, President uh, George W. Bush announced that the U.S. would plan to rejoin. And that was done in part to show that the U.S. was kind of a member of good standing. In 2003, we did rejoin. We did start funding the organization again. And as for the World Health Organization, it came under fire by President Trump for its alleged bias toward China and its role in the coronavirus pandemic. The United States' withdrawal from the WHO has not yet gone into effect. So technically, the U.S. only has to cancel its notice of withdrawal to remain a full-fledged member. But the most important part for the Geneva-based organization is probably that the U.S. restart fully funding the WHO. On July 6th of this year, Secretary of State Pompeo transmitted the formal letter withdrawing the United States from the WHO. And that starts at a one-year clock. And the only the two requirements to withdraw, it takes a year and you have to pay the dues. But the U.S. can change its mind and withdraw the withdrawal before it becomes effective on July 6, 2021. And until that date, the U.S. is still a member state of WHO. So the Biden administration on January 20th could send a letter to the Secretary General and rescind that withdrawal. So that is pretty straightforward. And then the funding is the next step. And that's critically important. I mean, right now, there's a three to kind of $400 million hole in their budget for money we promised. And that's in the, in the middle of the pandemic. So uh, yes, we have cut off almost all of our contributions to the WHO. So just to put it in perspective, overall, the annual WHO budget is about $3 billion. For context, this is one quarter of the Maryland Department of Health budget. And each year, the U.S. provides around $450 million in contributions with $118 million in assessed. These are treaty-obligated dues, uh, with the rest being voluntary programmatic. Uh, we were the largest contributor, with the majority of our contributions specifically connected to our own health priorities like infectious diseases, malaria and polio control, emergency response. You know, and our funding made up about 18% of the total budget. So these contributions were critical. They were serving American interests. And so it's essential that not only do we you know, rejoin, but we make sure that we refund because right now the WHO is in desperate straits. The United States could also re-engage with UNRWA, the UN Relief and Work Agency on Palestinian Refugees, and UNFPA, the UN Population Fund. But that would pretty much mean financing the organizations again. Here's Larry Johnson on this. It's just a matter of political will if the U.S. now wants to decide to fund it, because it's like a number of other U.N. programs. You're funded voluntarily, so it's up to the government to decide whether to fund it or not. So they stopped it a while ago, and now they can decide to turn it on again. And that's not any legal issue involved there at all. While rejoining these bodies and agreements may be technically straightforward for the Biden administration, rebuilding relationships with America's historical allies 
could be the biggest foreign policy challenge after four years of America first. But U.S. allies around the world, for one thing, seem relieved about President-elect Biden's plan to return to multilateralism. And the United States that is committed to engaging positively with the UN and its agencies. But the question remains, how big of a priority is the UN going to be on Biden's list? I think the key point is that whether we're talking about the WHO or UNESCO, and this is something conservative organizations have made, is when we walk away, when we defund, we are either truly abandoning our allies or vulnerable countries in their hour of need, or, you know, or can be categorized as such, it plays into the hands of countries, namely China, who can distract from their own actions and say the U.S. is uninterested in helping out, in being a reliable partner. The reality is, is that China is playing chess on the world stage right now while we play checkers. They are ramping up their efforts at the U.N. in multilateral forums as, as well as bilaterally, and through economic initiatives like Belt and Road, while we have withdrawn from the world stage, hollowed out the State Department and USAID. And that approach by this administration has failed. And that's something Republicans and Democrats have realized. What's needed going forward, what we're saying to Congress and to President-elect Biden's team, is there needs to be tangible signs that we are serious about re-engagement with the world. That means paying our UN dues in full, paying back over a billion dollars in arrears, fully investing in the State Department, its I.O. Bureau, which was gutted. Those steps will show that we are serious. And I can assure you that China will take notice and recognize that we are truly back and mean business. And I think the Biden administration recognizes the importance of it to, again, demonstrate our, our seriousness and be a counterweight to China and a number of other countries. That's it for our show. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulce Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.